I met my wife in Knoxville, Tennessee, uh, almost, almost 20 years ago. Uh, it's a crazy thing for me to think about. It's a crazy thing for me to think about for a lot of reasons, but one of them is because I can look back over the course of my life, and I can look back over the course of her life, and I, I can try to pick out all the things that happened and all the things that didn't happen that led us to one another. Uh, when we met in college, I was living here in Greenwood, and she was living in a town in Kentucky called Mount Vernon. Uh, not long before that, um, if you know our family history, uh, I was living in Broken Arrow, Oklahoma. Uh, she was living in Cincinnati, Ohio. And further back than that, I was in Houston, Texas, and she was actually in Richmond, Indiana. And so it's crazy for me, it's crazy for me to think about how far apart we started from one another and then how we ended up together at college. Uh, she came in the middle of uh, the year, my freshman year, so she came in the spring. She was a new student. She wasn't a part of like freshman orientation and all the big mixture activities and, and things like that. And uh, she was uh, basically standing all alone in the cafeteria one day. She had uh, bright red hair at the time a little different than she does now. And I walked up to her and I asked if she had a place to sit. And I invited her to come to the table where me and my friends were. And that's how our story began. Now, I'm sure that many of you have stories like that. Maybe all of you do. Maybe not about, uh, maybe you don't necessarily think about uh, that in terms of your, your husband and wife, uh, but we all think about the things that happen in our lives and, and all the little moments in our lives in the past that led us to where we are today. The places that we live, the, the job that we have, the friends that we have, the connections that we've made. And it can be interesting to look backwards and trace the trajectory of our lives to see how we got from where we were to where we are. And one of the reasons that this is interesting, one of the reasons that this is uh, sometimes even fun to do is because we all know that there are big moments that happen, uh, big things that, that really uh, determine uh, the course of our lives. But at the same time, there are small, maybe we even think insignificant moments that subtly shift the direction that we are headed just enough so that when we look back, we realize they led us to a place, a place that we never thought we would be. Today, we are bringing our uh, brief, only three weeks, our brief uh, series on Esther to a close. Uh, last week, uh, if you were here or if you watched online, you know that my uh, dad said that we were going to bring things to a close today, and he said not to worry because all the dots would be connected, and that, you know, made, uh, I'm sure everyone else feel really good. It made me freeze a little bit like a deer in the headlights because he failed to mention that I was going to be the one that had to connect all of those dots. No pressure. Uh, he and my mom, they're out of town this weekend at an event for the Solomon Foundation, but he's going to be back next weekend. Well, there are two things that I want to do, two things that I want to, to tell you before we really dive into uh, the message today. Um, and one is just kind of a little, uh, I don't know, warning is definitely not the right word, but just a little information that because uh, I'm going to be trying to connect all those dots and because we're just trying to finish the story of Esther, there's a lot to talk about. And so I'm going to spend a lot more time um, just kind of telling the story, really, really focusing on the narrative than we usually do. I don't think that's a bad thing at all, but it is, it's, it's something we're going to do more today than we typically do when we worship together. So I want to uh, make sure everyone knows about that. 
the other thing that I want to do is just to, to take the pressure off a little bit, and I want to tell you today that what we're going to see is the people of God triumph and the enemies of God fall. So even if we don't connect all the dots, even if you're still left with a few questions, you know that's what really matters. And although we don't hear the voice of God speaking to Esther and Mordecai, and even though we don't, don't, we don't hear the word of God proclaimed by a prophet or a witness uh, miracles of any kind in this story, we still see in Esther, especially when we look at it from back to front, a series of small events, a series of coincidences, uh, you might call them happy accidents even, that lead us to the conclusion that even though God is silent in the book of Esther, he is far from still. And he is working for the good of his people and his glory. But because we have so much to cover today, I want to jump right back into the thick of the action by uh, giving just a brief reminder about what we talked about last week. Uh, last week, we began by looking at Esther's cousin, a man named Mordecai. And we just used one word to describe him, and that word was loyal. This is a man who loved Esther, raised her as if he, she were his own daughter, and he always did what he thought was best for her, even if we might second-guess some of the choices that he made. After that, we looked at the villain of the story. It's a man named Haman, and we used one word to describe him, and it was just the word prideful. He is an outsider in the nation of Persia, just like Esther and Mordecai. He's a part of a people group called the Amalekites. And while we don't see the specifics of this in the book of Esther, we know from other parts of the Old Testament that, well, we know that the, uh, the Amalekites and the Jews, they don't get along very well. And because of this, even though Haman is promoted and even though Haman outranks Mordecai, Mordecai refuses to bow down to him like the other officials, like he's actually supposed to. And because Haman, like I said, is a very proud man, he cannot overlook this offense. He cannot come to terms with the disrespect that Mordecai has shown him. And so he wants to punish Mordecai. Well, honestly, though, he wants vengeance on Mordecai. It's more than just a punishment because, oh, he did something wrong. He's like, no, I want revenge on this person because of what he did to me. And then when he finds out that Mordecai is Jewish, things in the story really escalate quickly because now he comes up with a plan to have not just Mordecai punished, but all of the Jewish people in the land of Persia killed. This is what we read in Esther chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. Then Haman approached King Xerxes and said, There is a certain race of people scattered through all the provinces of your empire who keep themselves separate from everyone else. Their laws are different than those of any other people, and they refuse to obey the laws of the king. So it is not in the king's interest to let them live. If it please the king, issue a decree that they be destroyed, and I will give 10,000 large sacks of silver to the government administrators to be deposited in the royal treasury. I don't know how long the king thought about it. I don't know if he really paid attention to anything after Mordecai, not Mordecai, after Haman said he would give him 10,000 sacks of silver. But this is what we see in the next verse, verse 10. The king agreed, confirming his decision by removing his signet ring from his finger and giving it to Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite, uh, the enemy of the Jews. I know my dad uh, joked a little bit last week about 
not always knowing how to pronounce the names of people in the Old Testament or other parts of the Bible. Uh, that's something that I think is just, uh, it's, maybe it runs in the family. Uh, but I also know that, you know, four years of going to Bible college and listening to different professors read different passages of Scripture, they all pronounce their names differently. So it's not like, uh, it's not something that I ever get too worked up over. Maybe, maybe you do, I don't. Uh, well, having said that, having kind of set the stage for that, I want to ask you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to uh, Esther chapter 4, verses 11 through 17. Esther 4, verses 11 through 17, and just hold your place there for a moment. While you're doing that, I'm uh, just going to continue to sort of fill in a few of the gaps for the sake of time. Uh, one of the things that Haman did, and this is important because of what happens later, but one of the things that Haman did, because he was a very superstitious man, we didn't read this in our text, but before he even goes and approaches the king with this idea to destroy all of the Jewish people, is he casts lots. He casts lots to decide which day would be best for the Jewish people to be killed on. He wants the favor of his gods. And so he casts lots, the lots fall, he chooses this day, and then he goes before the king. And once the king agreed... Haman has these papers. He has a decree written up and it's sent all over the kingdom telling people what they're supposed to do, when they're supposed to do it, and what they're going to get out of it. In short, this decree says that all the Jewish people, young and old, men and women, they're all supposed to be killed. And this was all supposed to happen on one single day, one day for Haman to destroy all of his enemies. And the property of the Jewish people that were killed would be given to the ones who killed them. So he has this decree written up. He has this command on behalf of the king, but he goes further and he incentivizes uh, their behavior because basically he's telling the people, you need to do this, you need to obey the king. But like any good salesman, he says, but wait, there's more. You can get more land, more money, more stuff out of this as well. And while this is crazy in and of itself, one of the things that I think is the craziest is the fact that none of this was done in secret. None of this was done with any kind of subtlety. And so this means that the Jewish people living in Persia, they know what's going on. They know what this decree says. They know what's supposed to happen to them. They know when it's supposed to happen to them. They know what's been promised to the people who kill them. And this is why when we come to our text today in Esther 4, we see Mordecai has torn his clothes. He's wearing sackcloth and ashes. He's in the midst of the city just wailing. And then he goes up to the king's gate, but there's a dress code. And as you can imagine, he doesn't exactly, he doesn't exactly pass. And it seems like from our text that Esther knows what's going on with Mordecai, but she doesn't really know why. And so she sends some clothes for him to wear, but he refuses to put them on. And then what happens is the two of them have this conversation by way of one of her servants. And Mordecai tells this man everything going on with the decree. And so this man goes and tells Esther. And once she realizes what's going on, once she realizes why Mordecai is acting this way, she also realizes why he's there why he's trying to get her attention, because he wants her to go and talk to the king. But as we'll see, it's not that simple. If you're able, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's word? This is where we are going to read our main text today, 
Esther verse, excuse me, chapter four, verses 11 through 17. It begins with Esther's response. This is how Esther begins her response to Mordecai. All the king's officials and even the people in the provinces know that anyone who appears before the king in his inner court without being invited is doomed to die unless the king holds out his gold scepter. And the king has not called for me to come to him for 30 days. So Hathach, again, I don't know, gave Esther's message to Mordecai. Mordecai sent this reply to Esther. Don't think for a moment that because you're in the palace, you will escape with all, when all the other Jews are killed. If you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place, but you and your relatives will die. You know, who knows, if perhaps you were made queen for just such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, go and gather together all the Jews of Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will do the same. And then, though it is against the law, I will go to see the king. If I must die, I must die. So Mordecai went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Thank you. You may be seated. We always ask for God to bless the reading and the hearing of his word. Like we said last week, it was always our intention to focus primarily on the people, the characters that we see in the book of Esther. And we're going to end our series today by doing that together, but we're only going to talk about, we're only going to focus on one person, one character. So if you like to take notes, you can write this down somewhere. The Queen Esther. The Queen Esther. Now, if you were here a couple of weeks ago when our series began, you know that when we first meet her, it's because of her involvement in this contest that the king and his advisors had created in order to find him a new wife. And we know that while the contest was going on, she did basically everything Mordecai told her to do. Uh, The big part of that was that she hid her Jewish heritage. She didn't tell anyone that she was Jewish. We know that when she was in the king's palace, uh, she did everything that the king's servants told her to do as well in order to gain favor with the king. We know that she participated in this contest fully, and at the end of the contest, she became the queen. Now, here's the deal. This is probably going to sound a little cruel for me to say this at first, but I really believe that when we meet Esther at the beginning of this story, all that we really see, all that we really know about her is that she's young, she's pretty, and she does what she's told. Now, by way of contrast, a couple of weeks ago, we briefly looked at another person from the Old Testament, a man named Daniel, another man that lived, another person that lived in exile away from his home. And when you hold the two of them up against one another, Daniel and Esther, what you see is that there really isn't much comparison. Daniel is bold about his heritage. He's bold about his willingness to disobey the laws of the land if they go against the laws of God. He's outspoken about his faith. And, and in the book of Daniel, we basically see miraculous things happen in every single chapter. It's so different from what we see in the story of Esther. But having said that, I want to let you know something. And I want let you know, I want to let you know that what I'm about to say, it's not original with me. But I want to say it anyway because it's something that we all need to understand and we all need to internalize. 
Because while it sounds like I'm being really hard on Esther, what we need to realize is that Esther fits the mold of people we see God use most often. Esther fits the mold of people we see God use most often. I love the book of Daniel. I'm sure many of you love the book of Daniel. It's an incredible story. It's an incredible book. He lived an incredible life. But here's the truth. Here's the reality. One of the reasons that we love the book of Daniel so much and and the person of Daniel so much is because he is the exception. What he experienced, what he accomplished, it was extraordinary. And here's the deal. We would all like to be the exception. We would all like to be exceptional and extraordinary in our lives. But the reality is, most of us are not. And I'm sorry if this is the first time anyone's ever told you that today. I know it can be a real blow to the ego. I'm sorry that I have to be the one to do it. But what we see and what we are reminded of in the book of Esther is that God does not need us to be exceptional for him to use us. This is because Esther fits the mold of people we see God use most often. And I think at least, I think at least that the Esther that we see from chapter four to the end of the book is not quite the same Esther that we saw a couple of weeks ago at the beginning of this series. And and there are probably a lot of reasons, a lot of things that we can point to to illustrate that, but, but there are really two ways, two ways that I wanna talk about this at least. Two things Esther does uh, that really highlight this, this change that she has experienced in her life. And on the surface, they seem, they seem so simple, but the truth is I kind of love that because it's so fitting with the way that we see the whole story of Esther play out. And I also love it, and I think you'll agree with me, I also love it because the things that she does are things that you and I have the opportunities to do at different times in our lives as well. Now, we're probably not going to be able to do them... Um, you know, at the same level as Esther does, we're probably not going to do them with so much hanging in the balance as we see in the story of Esther, but there's still things that you and I can do. And the first one, the first thing that we see in Esther is simply this. She makes a choice. She makes a choice. And this is crucial, like I said, for a couple of reasons. One is because, to be honest, this is not something we've really seen from Esther so far in our story. In the beginning of the story, we met the other queen, the original queen, Queen Vashti. And we know that she was actually removed from the throne because she made a choice. She made a choice to stand up for herself, and she refused to go out before the king and his guests, and that choice cost her. And I love kind of the the, the little twist here, because now we see that Esther runs the risk of not just losing her throne, but losing her life, because she has made a choice to go before the king even though he has not asked for her. And we don't see this in scripture. I'm using my imagination here, so this is just a guess. You can disagree with me if you want. But I'm gonna guess that there was at least one person, one servant, one advisor, one friend, one somebody close to Esther who told her not to do this. I'm gonna guess that there was at least one person that said, this is a bad idea. You're risking your life. Don't go before the king if he doesn't want you there. But we know that she made a choice to do this regardless of the risk, regardless of the consequences that might happen. 
And I love this too because what we see here is courage and growth in Esther as a person because of why. It's because of why she makes this choice. We know that a big part of Esther's story involves the fact that she has kept her Jewish heritage a secret. And this is, it's really much more, it's a much bigger deal, I think, than we appreciate at times because keeping this a secret was not as simple as just not telling people about it. There, there's so much more uh, involved here. And there's a lot of examples uh, why this is, but I'm going to give you just one. Uh, we know that Jewish people, they have strict dietary laws. This forbids them from eating certain types of food altogether, but it also uh, keeps them from eating uh, food sacrificed to idols and food sacrificed to foreign gods. And if Esther were to obey these laws it would have given her nationality away in a heartbeat. We know from the book of Daniel, it's the first big test that he experiences when he's in captivity. It would have given Esther's nationality away in a heartbeat if she obeyed the Jewish dietary laws. So keeping this secret, it was more than just not telling the whole truth about where her people came from. It also meant going against the laws of God. But I say we see growth and courage here because we know that not only is her heritage now the thing that compels her to go before the king, but we also see that she's not going to keep that heritage hidden much longer. This thing that she once hid for her own sake, for her own safety, for her own benefit, is now the thing that drives her forward, that drives her into action for the sake of others. And this is one of those areas in life where we all need to learn from Esther. But at the same time, we kind of run the risk of glossing over the importance of this choice that she makes because, and I realize that I did this on my own earlier, but we run the risk of glossing over the importance of this because so many of us, we we know how the story ends. You might read this and think, well, if Esther goes before the king, she could die. But there's a little voice in the back of your head, or maybe you're doing this study with someone else, and they say, don't worry, she doesn't. Don't worry, she's going to be fine. And the drama kind of fades a little bit. But even though we feel like that, Esther certainly didn't. Even though we know how it's all going to end, Esther didn't. She didn't know how it was going to play out. She didn't know if her plan was going to work. She didn't even know if she would live long enough to try out her plan. But she makes a choice. She makes a choice. And I've got a couple of things like this for you today, and I realize, I realize that they are, they are very on the nose, but I just feel compelled to say them anyway. Because you know what you and I have to do at different times in our lives? We have to make choices based on our faith. We have to make choices based on our faith, and we don't always know how those choices are going to turn out. And this is a reality. This is a reality that we see all throughout Scripture. I'm going to give you two examples, one from the Old Testament and one from the New Testament. It's a really familiar, really famous passage from Joshua chapter 24. He says, But if you refuse to serve the Lord, then choose today whom you will serve. Would you prefer the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates? Or will it be the gods of the Amorites in whose land you now live? But as for me and my family, we will serve the Lord. And one of the things that I love about this passage in Joshua is the fact that it highlights something that a lot of people don't want to admit. And it highlights this reality that we're all going to serve someone. We're all going to serve something. We're all going to live for someone. We're all going to live for something. And at the most basic level, we have to choose 
what that's going to be. Another example, one from the New Testament this time in Acts chapter five. Again, another familiar passage, famous passage. Then they brought the apostles before the high council where the high priest confronted them. We gave you strict orders never again to teach in this man's name, he said. He's talking about Jesus. Instead, you have filled all Jerusalem with your teaching about him and you wanna make us responsible for his death. But Peter and the apostles replied, we must obey God rather than any human authority. They made a choice about who they were going to listen to, who they were going to serve, and what they were going to do because of that. We all have to make choices in our lives. One of the things that I've heard over and over again, I'm sure I'm not the only one, but I've heard this reality that we make our choices and then our choices make us. We make our choices and then our choices make us. Where do we put our time? Where do we put our energy? Where, where do we focus? What are we passionate about? Where do we, where do we spend our money? These are the things that determine who we are. They're the things that determine what other people know about us, what other people think is important to us. We all have to make choices. One other thing, one last thing before we move on. Another reason I think it's important to highlight this fact that Esther makes a choice here and for us to be challenged by this reality in our lives is because, and I think you know this as well, so many people don't make choices. And what I mean by that is so many people, they just let life happen to them. They just let life happen to them. I think you can make the case that early on in the story of Esther, she just lets life happen to her. But she realizes at this moment, at this point in her life, that she can't do that anymore. So she makes a choice. The second thing that we see Esther do, the other thing that I want to talk about is the fact that she takes a chance. She takes a chance. She goes before the king, even though she's not invited to be there, but he extends the scepter toward her and she has spared her life. And this gives her the opportunity to take a chance and try out her plan. And I'm gonna warn you initially, because it, like, it seems like a strange plan. And this is because her plan basically involves not one, but two banquets for the king. She has this great opportunity to speak to him. She has this audience with the king and she says, two banquets. Now, it sounds strange at first, but it's actually, when you study the book of Esther, it's, it's a wonderful thing because this is where you see a series of reversals begin to take place that are key to truly appreciating everything that happens in this story. Because, and the reason you see this begin to happen here is because these two banquets, they're a callback they're a callback to the banquets that we read about at the very beginning of this book. And at the same time, it's kind of a great plan because while we don't know a whole lot about King Xerxes from our story, we do know that he's a man that loves himself a banquet. So he's not gonna say no to this. Now, I'm gonna pause here for just a moment before we really begin to wrap up the book of Esther because everything starts to happen really quickly from this point on in our story. And like I said earlier, this is, this is on the nose, but I want to ask you a question. Where do you need to take a chance when it comes to your faith? I'm going to ask it like this. Where do you need to take a step of faith in your life? We all have to deal with the reality that we have to make choices, but we also, we also need to take chances in our lives. Is there a decision that you need to make? 
Is there a decision that you need, or excuse me, not a decision, is there an invitation that you need to uh, offer to someone? Is there a conversation you need to have? Listen, we all know what it's like. I don't think I'm alone in this. We all know what it's like to look back on our lives and, and to look back at different moments in our lives and think to ourselves, I wish I'd taken that chance. I wish I'd done that. I wish I'd said that, no matter what it is. So I'm challenging you to look at your life right now and ask yourselves, where do I need to take a chance so that there's not just another episode added to the pile of, I wish I'd done that. I wish I'd said that. It's a reality that we all need to deal with. Okay. Having asked you that, I want to jump back in. For the sake of time, because I'm running out of it, we're just going to skip over the first banquet, especially because all it really does is kind of butter the king up for the second one. And this is where we see her take her chance. I want you to follow along on the screen as I read what happens next in Esther 7. So the king and Haman went to Queen Esther's banquet. On this second occasion, while they were drinking wine, big shock, the king again said to Esther, tell me what you want, Queen Esther. What is your request? I will give it to you even if it is half the kingdom. Queen Esther replied, if I have found favor with the king and if it pleases the king to grant my request, I ask that my life and the lives of my people will be spared. For my people and I have been sold to those who would kill, slaughter, and annihilate us. If we had merely been sold as slaves, I could remain quiet, for that would be too trivial a matter to warrant disturbing the king. Esther uses the same language that's written in the decree about annihilating her people. He, she wants the king to understand the full weight of what's happening. He says, who would do such a thing, King Xerxes demanded? Who would be so presumptuous as to touch you? Esther replied, this wicked Haman is our adversary and our enemy. Haman's, Haman grew pale. Haman grew pale with fright before the king and queen. Then the king jumped to his feet in a rage and went out into the palace garden. Haman, however, stayed behind to plead for his life with Queen Esther, for he knew that the king intended to kill him. In despair, he fell on the couch where Queen Esther was reclining just as the king was returning from the palace garden. The king exclaimed, will he even assault the queen right here in the palace before my very eyes? And as soon as the king spoke, his attendants covered Haman's face, signaling his doom. Now, as I mentioned just a moment ago, the banquets there when we begin to see some great reversals take place in the book of Esther. And the first one, I think, is probably the most obvious, but it's this fact that Haman, in his desire to get vengeance on Mordecai, he had, um, depending on your translation, either constructed a gallows to execute Mordecai on or a sharpened pole to impale him on. But you can guess what happens. The very thing that he constructed to kill Mordecai is the way Haman is executed. That's one thing. We also see that Mordecai is given charge of Haman's land, and the king gives Mordecai a signet ring that he had originally given to Haman. These are all reversals. But we still have to deal with the decree. The decree that the king signed that gives the people the permission to kill all of the Jewish people in their land. And the main problem with this is the fact that it cannot be simply repealed. It can't just be canceled. That goes against the law. Because if the king were to cancel a decree, what it means ultimately is that the king is admitting a mistake. 
The king is saying that he did something wrong and that's not allowed to happen. Aren't you glad that we don't have that problem in our world today? Aren't you glad that we have world leaders who are willing to admit when they make a mistake? Thank goodness that's not something we have to deal with anymore. So what happens is the king gives Mordecai permission to write whatever he wants, just like he originally gave Haman. His only rule is that he's not allowed to undo the original decree. And so Mordecai sends out his own decree. And the simple version of it says that the Jews are allowed to defend themselves. They're allowed permission to kill anyone, even Persians who attack them. And the date arrives when all of this is supposed to happen. Remember, Haman is a superstitious man. He picked this date after casting lots. It was carefully chosen because it was supposed to uh, display the power of his gods. And I love the way that this part of the story is rendered in my new living translation because honestly just because it's so casual about how things happen this is what we read so on march 7th the two decrees of the king were put into effect on that day the enemies of the jews had hoped to overpower them but quite the opposite happened it was the jews who overpowered their enemies it's a reversal a day that was supposed to essentially be the end of the Jewish people in Persia and a great victory for other gods became a great victory for the Jewish people and their God. The only other reversal worth mentioning in our time together today is the fact that at the end of the book of Esther, we see that Mordecai is promoted to the role that Haman originally held. And so he becomes something like the prime minister of the land. I love what Bethany Jenkins says about Esther in an article from the Gospel Coalition. She says, the Esther story is a reversal of the expected. What appears inevitable is not, and who appears powerful is not. Appearances are not what they seem. And this is something, this is a truth from this story that we need to hold on to at every moment in our lives because it is just as true today as it was back then. Earlier, I talked about how I can look back over the course of my life and I can see uh, the many different events, the many different decisions, some in my control, some out of my control. So many forks in the road and coincidences that led me to where I am today, specifically when it comes to my wife, my marriage, and now my children. When we think about the book of Esther and the thing that makes it so unique, the fact that God appears to be absent, we realize that in fact what this does is it creates a unique opportunity for us as readers. And this is because if we believe that scripture is inspired by God, this changes the way that we read Esther because rather than the lack of God in the story just being something that we notice or something interesting, it becomes something intentional that should impact how we read and study this book. What Esther does is something other books of the Bible don't do. It forces us to look for God. What it does is it forces us to look for God in the everyday moments of the story. All of the strange coincidences that just seemed to happen to Esther and Mordecai, all of the dominoes that fell in just the right order so that an orphan girl from another country became queen. We look at Esther like we look at our own lives. And what I mean, what I mean when I say that is that we, we often only truly appreciate where we are today when we look backwards and notice all of the things that happened in our lives that brought us here. This is because it gives us a perspective that we don't have in the moment. 
And when we look at the book of Esther and we see everything that happens, we can't walk away from it. We can't walk away from it without realizing that God was working the entire time, whether we read his name in the text or not. And this is, this is incredibly valuable for us because it gives us two things that we need in our lives. I'm just gonna say them at the same time. It gives us hope and peace. Hope and peace. Remember the words from Hebrews 11. Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. We have hope because God is working in our lives and we have peace because we know he is working even when we don't see it. Even when we don't feel it. Everyone, basically... I should say that. Basically, everyone, even people outside of the church, they have some level of familiarity with stories like Moses parting the Red Sea, uh, the plagues of Egypt, Daniel and the lion's den. These are great moments in the Bible. There are moments when, you know, God doesn't just show up because he's He's always there. He's always been there. But when God reveals himself in mighty and powerful and obvious ways, But the truth is, even though those are the moments we focus on at times when we study scripture, we focus on them, just like I said about Daniel, we focus on them because they are the exception when you think about all of human history. And what Esther does, one of the things that Esther does is it reminds us that even when the sun doesn't stand still and even when manna doesn't fall from heaven and even when we don't hear his name or feel his presence, God is still working. Always, always, there's so much, there's so much that we can see in the book of Esther. And I know, I know that we did such a brief series on it. But there are two things, two truths of scripture that I am reminded of every time I read this book. Deuteronomy 31, the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. This is repeated in Hebrews chapter 13. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. The other one is this from 2 Timothy. If we are faithless, he will remain faithful. The book of Esther reminds us that God is in control and that we can trust him all the time, no matter what. I can't speak for you today, but I know that there are lots of times, there have been lots of times in my life when I want to know why things are happening I want to see behind the curtain. I want to feel the presence of God. I want, to, I want to have the comfort to be able to point to an event, whether in the world or just in my own life, and say, it's okay. I know why this happened. I know what's coming next. But there are lots of times, most times, when I can't do that. I don't have that comfort. I don't feel that presence. I'll just say it like that. And so one of the things, one of the many things that I love about the book of Esther is it reminds me that even if I don't feel that, even if I don't understand everything, I can trust God. I can trust God. And you can too. Would you pray with me? God, thank you so much for everything that we see in the book of Esther. Thank you for the ways that it challenges us in our lives today. Thank you for the unique opportunity that it creates for us when it comes to how we study scripture and how we appreciate and look at our own lives. I pray, God, that you would guide us and direct us, that you would give us us the peace and the comfort we need in the midst of uncertain, an uncertain world. 
Because our certainty and our hope is not based on the things of this world, it's based on you. And we can find peace, not because of our circumstances, but because of a person. And that person is Jesus. We pray this in his name.